This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Join AMDA and your colleagues in person at PALTC 22, AMDA's annual conference that's being held in Baltimore, Maryland, March 10th through 13th, 2022. Or, if you prefer a virtual option, you can attend digitally. There's a great program planned with lots of new content on COVID and other clinical and regulatory topics, along with some favorites like our Policy General session, In the Trenches, posters, and more. We'll also have an in-person House of Delegates meeting. Learn more at PALTC.org. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jammed on the Go, as we take some deeper dives into some representative articles from the December 2021 issue of Jamda, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We will be speaking with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director of the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Drs. Brown and Sloan, as always, welcome to JAMDA on the go. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Thanks, Wayne. Uh, Again, we have some uh, interesting and thought-provoking articles to discuss today from the December 2021 issue of JAMDA. Can you give us a a little taste? Can you wet our beaks? (laughs) Absolutely. I'll be talking about the growth of full-time long-term care work among physicians and nurse practitioners. And I'll also discuss the new AMDA pain guideline, which is published online in JAMDA this month. My topics include de-prescribing of antihypertensives in the nursing home and the somewhat surprising finding that being on a ventilator may protect against COVID-19. Well, as my grandmother would say, these are front burner topics. So let's let's go. Uh, Our first article, growth of physicians and nurse practitioners practicing full-time in nursing homes. You know, uh, Dr. Brown, it's very interesting that this article is coming out now as this has been kind of the face of post-acute and long-term care, at least lately, and especially for folks like, uh, like me. So, you know, what do we know about, about the people that we now call SNFIS, the ones who focused in post-acute and long-term care? Yeah, Wayne, um, I think we can generally agree that residents who live in nursing homes have a high rate of emergency room use and more so potentially avoidable hospitalizations. It's been pontificated for quite some time that the lack of on-plate availability of primary care might be the contributing factor to this phenomenon for this vulnerable population. So the trend to move away from a community provider serving as the primary care to the residents to a more full-time sniffist, as you you said, um, has responded directly to this concern. So this particular article um, discusses a retrospective cohort study 
that took a closer look at how resident and nursing homes were fundamentally changed by having a full-time provider, whether it be a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a physician's assistant on site. It looked to describe the variation among nursing homes using a full-time provider. The first notable finding was that from 2008, when the study data began to be collected to 2017, the number of full-time nursing home providers increased from about 26% to 44.6%, with an increase in nurse practitioner, physician assistant, and physicians practicing full-time in the nursing home. Perhaps not surprisingly, the largest increase was in the number of full-time nurse practitioners. Residents with a nurse practitioner primary care provider were 23 times more likely to have a full-time provider. The number of residents with a physician as their primary care provider actually decreased. So residents who received care from both a physician and an NP or a PA increased from 33.6 in 2008 to 62.5% in 2018. There was a large variation among facilities in the percentage of residents with a full-time provider from 5.72% of residents with a full-time provider in the bottom quintile facilities to nearly 92% in the top. Hmm. Residents in larger urban for-profit and minority serving nursing homes had higher odds of having a full-time nursing home provider, but these nursing home characteristics explained little of the variation among facilities. The percentage of nursing home residents with full-time providers continues to grow with very large variation among nursing homes. This phenomenon is similar to the growth of full-time hospital physicians, hospitalists. In both instances, the thought is that specialization tends to promote both quality as well as efficiency. There are many advantages that can be drawn from these attributes, certainly. I'm curious what the two of you think about this evolving change, though, um, particularly you, Wayne. <laughs> so, you know, I remember uh, very clearly, Dr. Brown, when I told my administrator and my and my chair as a young, new young geriatrician in um you know, just at the turn of uh, of the millennium, that I wanted to do skilled nursing care only. Why do you want to do that? You're not going to be able to see many people. It's uh, you know, it's not going to be satisfying. It so many so much of a naysayer attitude about doing this, mostly because of myopia. And I have to tell you, um, uh, it. What this paper didn't talk about, obviously, what would be interesting to know about is job satisfaction. You know, there's no scheduled, there were no scheduled patients. There was nothing that, um, uh, you know, uh, we had a team who could address issues when they came up so that if you needed to get to your kid's concert at two o'clock in the afternoon rather than miss it because of, you know, regular primary care type duties, you could do that. My job satisfaction for my for for being a hundred um, percent skilled nursing facility provider was huge, and you know just the ability to be there on a regular basis um, developed trust, rapport, community, um, and uh, you know I clearly this paper shows shows the same. It's um it's or at least intimates the same, but um, but yeah, it's been a. Uh, it's been an absolutely positive experience um, all the way around, I think. I don't know what you think, Dr. Sloan. Um, I am so in agreement with that. I think one of the best kept secrets in medicine is what a good job opportunity is afforded to people who want to do full-time 
uh, long-term care medicine. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is the overhead is so low comparatively that you don't have to pay for all that staff and all that overhead. Mm-hmm. So the, the, you, have, you can generate less income and still have the same amount of personal income. That's number one. Number two is it can, it's easy to do part-time because of the lack of overhead needs. I mean, there's some, but not as much. And the other thing is that to me, it's very clear that people who do a lot of long-term care are better at it. Um, you know, they, they connect better with the facilities. The facilities, facilities know who they are. They know about the problems. They know the epidemiology and all this kind of stuff. The challenge is, um, at least for those of us who do academic work, is that there's almost no data showing that full-time folks do any different than people who aren't. And one of the reasons for that is because none of the primary data that comes out of nursing homes, you know, like MDS state, all this, all this I mean, yeah. secondary data analysis, mm-hmm. um, CMS doesn't collect anything about the medical director. So it's something we're trying to change at a policy level because it'd be so much easier than to demonstrate or test, you know, the characteristics of the medical director against the outcomes. Uh, I, 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 totally echo that if that resonates with me and you know and for all of our listeners out there who are um you know 100 practicing skilled nursing facility providers you know what a what a change it's made to medicine to be able to call up the emergency room from your own institution and say hey it's wayne and i'm over here at uh you know at x facility i'm going to be sending over mrs so and so it's in the same we're all sharing the same record we're sharing the same philosophy of care there's already a connection um you know i i would cherish that study dr sloan because i think that uh that it would um it would finally bring to 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 light what we've been talking about for 20 years Well, let's get on to our next article, uh, which uh, resonates with all of us and I thought was very interesting. Deprescribing blood pressure treatment in long-term care residents. Deprescribing, it's the hot topic of the time. Um, you know, no clear guidelines. Um, you know, how do we approach deprescribing? Can be somewhat complicated. Uh, Dr. Sloan, do we have any additional information from this article from the December 2021 issue of JAMDA? Well, it's not a guideline, so it's not you know definitive in terms of what to do, but it certainly describes what's being done and raises some issues. It's a nice collaboration of faculty from the West Coast, Stanford, University of California, San Francisco, Veterans Administration, University of Washington. They looked at Veterans Administration, VA, electronic nursing home databases, um, which are pretty complete, Mm-hmm. and looked at over 31,000 residents age 65 and older in their nursing homes. Um, they excluded post-acute and hospice patients because they really wanted to look at people who were long-stay nursing home residents. And that's uh, and they wanted, then wanted to look at trends in prescribing and deprescribing, particularly of antihypertensives. In this patient group, they looked at longitudinal prescribing histories of beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, angiotensin, converting enzyme inhibitors, diuretics, you know, central alpha blockers, vasodilators, potassium sparing diuretics, you know, all this stuff that is generally used for hypertension control. And they studied prescribing trends on a week by week basis. And then they looked at longitudinal trends and saw how they related to patient characteristics and a pretty complicated thing, you know, 
do things like blood pressure levels, chronic conditions, acute changes in cognitive status. Uh, interesting, 91% of these individuals in the study had blood pressures below 150 over 90 on enrollment, which means that they had pretty good hypertension control. But of course, like all nursing home residents, they had a lot of ADL impairments and other comorbidities with high mortality and hospitalization rates during follow-up. What they found was that deprescribing was pretty common. There was an average of 1.8 medication reductions um, of antihypertensive drugs per year. And 70% of the residents experienced deprescribing at least once during their observation period. Whereas only 31% had an antihypertensive started or increased. Um, this means essentially that deprescribing is the major, the predominant role of physicians in nursing homes around antihypertensives. Now, the most common times deprescribing happened was, and not surprising, during the first four weeks after admission, because for, we know for a variety of reasons, they're taking their medicines where they weren't before, um, they're um, not in quite a frenetic environment, uh, maybe a little less anxiety, um, and then, of course, the last four weeks of life, um, when we're deprescribing things that are not, you know, as much as we can in terms of uh, providing for um, comfort. Other factors statistically associated with deprescribing included older age, lower blood pressure, of course, better cognitive function, a recent fall, and a lower GFR. These are all things we can understand. Um, in conclusion, the authors noted that the vast majority of the literature on blood pressure medication has focused on the initiation and, and intensification of therapy, and that nursing home residents have been excluded from most research. Their data supports the notion that deprescribing should be at the foremost of our minds when managing nursing home residents, particularly during that month after admission, when they have adverse events, you know, like falls that could be related to hypotension, and when they're physically declining. They also point out that more work needs to be done to help providers make evidence-based decisions rather than flying by the seat of our pants. <laughs> And what a what a great article to follow the previous article that we talked about because who really is able to look at this unique cohort of folks that we call nursing home residents and uh, and think of them differently than how they were thought of in the in the community just with regard to their needs um, uh, as you've already described, Dr. Sloan. But it reminds me um, once again as a young geriatrician um, having a 90 plus year old come into the facility who went to the hospital with that very common diagnosis of weakness and dizziness mm -hmm. and uh, had a full workup from everybody, neurology, cardiology, couldn't find a thing wrong. And of course, sent her to the to the skilled nursing setting where she would be cured by Dr. Wayne Saltzman, and uh, and found that she was on uh, probably close to a cabillion hypertensive medications, for which we took away slowly, and lo and behold, no more weakness and dizziness. A fairly fairly functional lady who was actually able to be discharged back to the community. So um, I agree. We need more work in this, and uh, and you know, AMDA, uh, the society again, is looking at focusing on on deprescribing, and hopefully, it'll it'll have some uh, it'll have some substance to that. Yeah, you know, I think there's another point in your anecdote, which is that as hospital stays have gotten shorter and shorter, 
you know, it's virtually impossible to do things like see what the blood pressure is actually doing. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, in some cases, elders do follow Occam's razor. The simplest solution is probably the correct one. Um, if we only had time and thought to look at that, like medication. So uh, let's get to article number three, pain management in the post-acute and long-term care setting and AMDA clinical practice guideline. Uh, Dr. Brown, uh, this has been long in the making, and uh, the folks who have uh, worked on this have, wow, really been diligent and have gone back and forth. And, um, you know, tell us about these, these guidelines that I'm so thankful JAMDA has published. Me too. Me too, Wayne. I think um, I'll, I'll do my best to, to describe it. Um, I want to start by saying that this clinical practice guideline is full of so much valuable information. And I'd strongly suggest really just downloading it as a reference and having it as a go-to. There are a number of clinical practice guidelines out there, but this is a really strong and timely guide for our particular patient population. So this particular clinical practice guideline was developed by an interdisciplinary team of clinicians with expertise in pain, as well as geriatrics. A previous AMDA clinical practice guideline on pain was reviewed and was revi revised extensively in the creation of this one. The authors took a look at 25 key questions regarding pain in long-term care and went on to share 11 steps to implement the clinical practice guideline in any clinical setting, beginning with screening for pain periodically. A number of tables, including assessment for pain tools, situations where pain medication might be beneficial, and dosing rec recommendations were also included. I was struck by how difficult this practice guideline must have been to create. So often the person in front of us experiencing pain varies from another person sitting down the hall that's experiencing pain. Mm, mm, mm. This clinical practice guideline really, really does a nice job of referring the user to relevant literature to utilize to inform treatment plans. I thought the accompanying editorial to this clinical practice guideline said it well. A more accurate appraisal of pain would be that pain is sometimes managed effectively, but is often it's characterized inadequately and managed haphazardly. In post-acute and long-term care, more than knowing the latest thinking about treatment, a big challenge is whether there is any meaningful effort to define the exact problem and identify adequately the underlying issues contributing to the pain prior to selecting treatment. So the pain clinical practice guideline emphasizes the importance of following all key steps in the care delivery process, including recognition and assessment, diagnosis and interpretation of findings, treatment and ongoing monitoring, as well as encouraging us to slow down and not just go from symptom to treatment. Mm. There's a really beautiful figure to reorient oneself in clinical problem solving and decision making to this at the start of these guidelines. From there, it jumps into the questions we all ask ourselves. What is the pain? What are some common challenges in managing pain? When should screening take place? Just to name a few. It walks through descriptors, challenges, biases we might have, variability in practice, roles we each play in treating pain, and how policy impacts all of this. A number of highly useful tables and tools are incorporated throughout, which are great to look at quickly when you're just in the moment and trying to treat someone. I think the idea I like most about this particular clinical practice guideline is that it provides substantial flexibility in adapting general recommendations to specific situations and patients. 
provides the guiding principles for decision-making and explains how to think through specific situations, but it also recognizes that there are many different opinions and perspectives about pain and some also some common agreement. I, for one, will have this document printed off and prepared to refer to when I'm seeing patients in my nursing home practice. I'm hopeful I can share it with my nursing home colleagues as well to make pain management less intimidating for all of us. Mm -hmm. Another great, uh, an, another great segue um, along this list of articles that we're reviewing together uh, about how uh, we really need to look at this population um, as the unique population it is, and that often includes uh, pain as well. So as you as you mentioned, Dr. Brown, this is not the type of thing you take on a beach to read, you know, and you know it's not a story. It's a um, but it is a it is a reference, and I can envision it in an interdisciplinary team meeting um, on benchside rounds. Um, you know, working with uh, with fellows and students um, and sharing information with our with our frontline uh, staff um, to help uh, to help increase their awareness of uh, of pain and the needs of managing and how we look at at uh, individuals uniquely. Really, really great resource. Well, our, our last article, uh, the absence of COVID-19 disease among chronically ventilated nursing home patients fascinating um, and uh, uh, keeping in line with the attention that JAMDA it continues to place on COVID-19 and the research that is coming uh, out of it. I am, I am surprised when I think of chronic ventilator management because I kind of transition to compromised pulmonary status and increased risk for infection. So, um, Tell us a little bit more about this article, Dr. Sloan, from the December 2021 issue of JAMDA. Well, you know, Wayne, it's, it struck me as quite counterintuitive as well when I looked at this paper, um, but it's true. Being on a ventilator may help protect you against COVID-19, according to this study in this month's JAMDA. Now, it's a small paper reporting data from three nursing homes in New York each of which had a ventilator unit and one or more other units in the building, and each of which had at least one COVID-19 outbreak. Hmm. What they found was that the COVID-19 death rate among the 93 ventilated patients was around 10%, whereas the death rate among the uh, almost 1,200 non-ventilated patients was almost 20%, almost twice as much. They also found that when they started testing patients for COVID, none of the ventilator patients tested positive or as many unventilated patients did, you know, being asymptomatic. This was despite the fact the same staff you know, had the positivity rates in the staff were similar across the units. Now, at first it just sounds weird because you're, I'm used to people in ventilators being the ones who get the resistant infections, the one who sure. are always on antibiotics and right. they're always sick. And, um, but the authors actually offered sensible explanations for these findings. One is that the ventilator staff were probably especially attentive to infection control measures. Another is that ventilators themselves contain electrostatic filters that are designed to remove bacteria and viruses before the air enters the lungs. And the kind of thing we've been putting into our um, advanced um, air handling systems. And the third possibility is that ventilator patients don't breathe their air through the noses yielding both lower risk of getting infection, because that's the most common rate, I mean, route of entry, 
but also it raises the concern that doing a nasal COVID test may not be ideal for this population. Mm. 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 So a lot to think about if you work in a setting that includes patients chronically on ventilators. Wow. I, uh, a uh, fascinating article, and I just couldn't help but think, you know, I would just like COVID-19 to go away altogether, but uh, we can't ventilate everybody. We'll we'll continue to work on that. <laughs> no, thank you. wish for the holidays. Well, if, if our listeners thought that these four articles were fascinating as I did, um, please take a look at the December 2021 issue of JAMDA a little bit more because there's plenty where that came from. Uh, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. As I said, take a look at this December 2021 uh, issue. Uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Dr. Sloan, Dr. Brown, thank you again for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Thank you, Wayne. It's been a pleasure and uh, have a happy new year. Mm. Thanks so much. Happy holidays. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman with AMDA On The Go co-editor and technical guru, John Gladstone, wishing you happy holidays and the best in 2022 from JAMDA On The Go and the rest of the AMDA On The Go family of podcasts. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.